Welcome to Sci Section. My name is Luke Peterson, and I am a journalist for the Sci Section radio show, broadcasted on the CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. And we are here today with Dr. Julie Miller. So thank you for taking the time to meet with me today, Dr. Miller. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having right. me. Yeah. So um, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, like what your duties are at UCLA and uh, what your research is about? Sure. Um, so I am a postdoc uh, in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology with Professor Pinter Woolman. And um, I study the behavior of ant colonies. And uh, I've got a few projects going at the moment. Um, but I originally joined the lab um, interested in um, how the uh, size of a ant colony, so how many individuals in the group, affects um, the ability of the group to coordinate and organize. Um, so you can imagine if you're in a very small uh, group, like class project group, you know, a group of like four people, that's a really different um, sort of activity than if you're in a group of 10,000 individuals trying to write a report. Um, so I, I wanted to understand what kind of challenges large and small groups face when trying to um, do some basic organizing. And I approached that, I was trying to think of what's a basic kind of organizational task that all colonies have to do. And so I looked to feeding. So how do ant colonies bring in food? And how do they do that uh, in a way that keeps, basically satisfies the needs of the colony? And, um, you know, they have to, like any animal, they have to bring in sugars and proteins and salts and fats, and they have to do so in a way that uh, meets the minute-by-minute uh, -minute needs of the, of the colony. And so um, there's a group of ants that have to go out and get the food. So most ants, um, the sort of common knowledge among social insect people, but not everyone is a social insect person, that the queen actually doesn't do most of anything. She just lays there and lays eggs. The real work is done by her daughters, the workers. And so um, I wanted to focus on this group of workers that goes out into the world and brings back food. And it's they are the key individuals um, who are um, making sure that the colony is well fed. And I wanted to understand how foragers in large colonies and small colonies um, meet this challenge. So do you think that there's more specialization within a colony as its size increases? And um, also, do you think that every ant has a specified role or are there ants that don't perform tasks as well as other ants? Is there sort of like a disparity between their performances or? Um, yeah, so yeah, there's sort of two questions there. Um, so the first is there, does specialization increase with colony size? Um, there's some, there's a lot of literature to suggest that that is the case, um, but it doesn't seem to universally be true. Um, so I would say generally we, we assume that's happening, um, you know, if we look between species. Um, and sometimes if we look within a colony, that's true. But um, so so I would say yes with a, a, a big sort of asterisk. Um, and then the second question was, um, do some individuals, are some individuals better at tasks than others? Or what, what was it again? Yeah. Um, it, if, all, if ants that 
are supposed to do similar tasks, go out into the world, would you expect that some ants can uh, produce greater yields, like if there are scavengers that um, you Oh, right. Um, yeah. Um, or what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so that's not something I have specifically investigated, but there are people in my lab and also um, in the greater community of, of researchers have found that that is the case, that's as, um, and it, that certain individuals are better at um, finding food or, um, yeah, bringing back yields, better yields, and that sometimes increases with experience, so that individuals, even though you've got a, a giant group of individuals that all seem very simple, these individuals have the capacity to learn and get better at the tasks that they're doing, and so there's not only like a predisposed, some individuals are indeed predisposed to do certain tasks better because they are either genetically predisposed or developmentally have better equipment for doing those tasks, but um, Sometimes they just get better with time and practice. And, and as you practice a certain, you know, specific skill more and more, you get better about it, better and better at it. Yeah, um, but yeah, so that, that actually, that's not something that I'm specifically looking at with my research. And I sort of, in a, in a way, I'm looking at just, um, I guess, a more broader specialization class of just what we call the foragers, the ants that go outside and collect food. So those ants are indeed specialized to do that task, but I haven't mm -hmm. been... Um, it would be interesting actually to ask, are they, are the ones that go out, like how variable are they in their, um, how much food they bring back, um, or how, how well they are at, um, extracting resources. Um, but yeah, so hope that answers that question. Yeah. Um, it's, it's open-ended. Um, okay. so, um, what is it like to do field work for somebody in your position? What do you look for when you go out? Like what sorts of data do you um, oh, yeah. Um, well, the data type of data really depends on the question. Um, but yeah, I, I love field work. Field work is like why I got into this, um, because I really just love observing the animals out in their environments and, um, and just understanding what, you know, what their day to day is like. And um, when I go out to do field work, most recently, it's mostly been to collect ants to bring them back into the lab where I study their behavior, often using video recording. But um, so, I mean, it really varies depending on where you are, what species you're working on, and what kind of question. But more recently, my work on Argentine ants, which are um, very locally abundant in Southern California, and but they're invasive. Um, so this really isn't their sort of native habitat. Um, but I go out, honestly, to the parking lot behind my house, and I pour water into a crack in the sidewalk and the ants come flooding out and so i'm sitting there on the concrete with an aspirator which is this like um a special tool that our entomologists often use to suck up the insects so you have like a, imagine a vial with a long tube attached to it and on one end of the tube you are you're sucking in air and um there's a little uh second tube that comes out of the vial where you point uh, you, that you point toward, to the ants and then you suck up the ants into the vial, but you're not actually, there's a little filter, so you don't actually inhale ants, although that does happen sometimes in a, in a failed filter situation, but um, basically just sucking up ants into these vials that I can then transport back to the, um, to the lab. Um, but I've done field work in um, South Africa, in Costa Rica, in Trinidad, all these like very different kinds of habitats where um, my work involves walking around looking for um, like ants that are out foraging. So I just look for ants walking around, sometimes in groups. Um, and then other times I'm 
I will set out little baits and um, wait for ants to arrive. And then I follow them back to their nest because um, they're bringing food back to home. So it, if I'm looking for nests, that's a good strategy. If I'm looking for um, just to collect a few workers um, or to understand um, their foraging behavior, for instance, it's fine to just walk around until you find uh, the ants you're looking for. Hmm. Um, so that's sort of a cross section, I guess, of, um, of things. Okay. So um, when you find colonies or, yeah, when you find colonies for, um, or nests for larger colonies, um, yeah. what, what's uh, distinct about them? Like, or, like we said before, is there more of a, can you tell that there's more specialization occurring there? there are, is, is it more um, well-built? Um, what, what sort of um, makes those distinct from other smaller um, nests? Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like that's a, that's a great question that we don't have a lot of answers to yet. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, for when it comes to um, uh, some basic things like, you know, a larger colony is obviously going to have a larger nest, like they're just going to occupy more space. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to find things that like the workers in large colonies or species with large colonies tend to be smaller. So the workers are tinier. Uh, there's this phenomenon of worker miniaturization in smaller colony species, um, whereas in smaller colony species, the workers tend to be more similar, they tend to be larger. Um, and so there's sort of this like syndrome that happens as you become a larger colony, like um, the queens tend to be much more um, uh, uh, Poly, where the, the, the queens tend to be much larger than the workers. So the difference in um, morphology between the workers and the queens also becomes more extreme in larger colonies. And that's partly because as you have a larger queen, she can then make more workers and be more efficient at, at her job of just pumping out eggs. Um, but that's not always true. Sometimes you get lots of queens in a large colony species. So this, innate, this invasive ant, the Argentine ant, has... Um, lots of queens like the I, I don't remember the ratio of workers to queens but um a single colony can have hundreds of queens and and we actually in california we have this super colony um which are these it, the argentine ants in their native range are actually aggressive to one another so if you if one colony encounters another they'll like fight but here um in southern california and actually all the way up to the bay area and maybe even beyond that a bit, um, they, when the, when two neighboring colonies encounter each other, they're like, oh, hey, buddies, and they, they just um, will exchange workers, exchange brood, exchange food, and they act as if they were part of the same colony, and that results in this super colony, the size of California, basically, um, of this, um, of just workers that are all tolerant to each other, and so that's a sort of extreme case of a large colony size that's um, arrived at due to this um, highly tolerant behavior, which is unique to the invasive range. So they, like I said, in Argentina, they don't do this. Um, but I, I'm actually, that's not a, a, an area that I'm actively studying, but I, I do think it's totally fascinating. Um, but um, one thing I am studying about large colony size that I actually haven't mentioned yet that I'm working on during this postdoc is the nest itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, several people in our lab are interested in how nest architecture um, uh, is affected by 
ant colony behavior and vice versa. So how does architecture affect the behavior of the ants as well? And so I was, um, again, entering the lab thinking about colony size and what kind of effects that would have um, on nest architecture. And I, as a side project with a student, Emma Wan, um, who's an undergrad now graduated, uh, we, we did this um, comparative analysis of um, nest architecture across species that varied in their colony size. So I wanted to, I, um, I investigated all the literature where people had um, visual depictions of ant nests. And what's pretty neat, and this um, um, ant biologist Walter Schinkel pioneered this method of pouring molten metal down the um, holes of ant nests and then digging them out. So you get these metal castings of the nest. So you can see, um, you get these basically these gorgeous sculptures of ant nests. Um, and so people um, have done this for various species and then published um, these images through publications studying various ants. And so we went through all these images that have been published and um, wanted to understand how the structure of these nests might vary in large versus small colony species. And so um, we, the first thing I, I really was curious to know is that if you're in a large colony, kind of like a you know, human in a very large city, um, do you have to um, create uh, connectivity between different parts of the nest more so in a large colony because it's like having you know the city of LA without a freeway system like you need a way to connect these disparate parts so i wanted to understand the connectivity of nests from large versus small any small colony sizes um, and we also wanted to understand um, another way of like that those these call these nests might be structured differently and that was by looking at how the colony is or sorry how the nest is subdivided so nests ant nests tend to have these things called chambers where which are kind of like little um bubbles where the ants gather around and they do their various tasks like taking care of the brood or take, storing food um cleaning each other storing waste whatever um and the chain we wanted to analyze how the number of chambers and the sizes of chambers might vary in large versus small colony size species. And the idea was that actually is a hypothesis put forth by um, a biologist back in the 50s. Um, uh, he proposed that larger ant colonies probably have to subdivide their group into smaller working groups because um, if those groups are so large, it's very hard to communicate with one another. Kind of like how I talked about in the, uh, if you're in a group project and you're trying to communicate with 10,000 individuals, it's like a mess. Whereas if you're in a group of say four or five, you, you know, communication is more um, efficient. And so the idea is to subdivide your whole colony into these more manageable working group sizes. And so I wanted to see if the nest helps facilitate um, breaking down the group into those efficient group sizes. And so that actually, um, just to give you, you know, the spoiler alert, the paper is still um, uh, under under um, revision. So it's not published yet, but hopefully will be very soon. Um, we found that there is these larger nests are more subdivided. They, they do um, increase in the number of these chambers without actually increasing in the size of the chamber. So the subgroup idea is at least supported, but we do not find that these nests are more highly connected. So, um, which, is, which is surprising on one level because it's like, well, how do they um, stay sort of within um, contact with each other? Um, 
but it's also not it's also potentially possible that you know it's it's very expensive uh, energetically expensive to build a highly connected nest um, that you know you've got to dig all these extra tunnels to keep everybody connected it may also impair the structural integrity of the nest if you're in a if you're you know in the soil and you build too many tunnels your walls may come crashing down so um so anyway uh th that was sort of the that's that's a side project that i've um been working on in this in as a postdoc here um related to to the nest architecture well it seems like ants are very industrious like you mentioned earlier that um the queen really doesn't have any oversight over ants in a typical that's large right. colony um and i also read on um your research website and i was fascinated by this that um mm -hmm that uh there's a species of ants called oh ophthalmoponi right uh-huh yeah uh-huh um and you refer to them as queenless ants and yeah. um i'm not sure if you also use the term um anarchy to describe them uh-huh a stable social anarchy maybe maybe yeah. that was the term that you used or something like that uh -huh. um can you elaborate a little bit about that and um how those seems like uh, those seem like two opposites, you know, like stable anarchy. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I was totally, I guess, um, just fell in love with these ants um, when I was a grad student, and um, because they just seem like such a weird echo of our human societies um in a in a in a weirdly more functional way um so these ants have evolutionarily lost the queen caste so all of the ants are technically workers um but weirdly uh they've retained the ability to store sperm so that's that's this is a sort of a trait that most people you know, don't think about with, with workers is workers don't mate. They um, can't reproduce directly. Um, sometimes they can lay male eggs, which is a, another story. Um, but the, these, the workers in this species retain the ability to mate and store sperm. And that's what gives them the ability to um, reproduce like a queen. And um, there's this phenomenon of losing the queen caste has evolved several times in ants and um there's a lot, couple reasons why that tend we think that tends to happen um often to do often has to do with the risk of um flying off and starting your own colony as a queen so it may be a, a lower risk strategy to just let everybody have a chance at it um but the problem with letting everybody have a chance at it is you get this um, potential for competition between the workers. It's like, well, who, who gets to produce more offspring? Who gets to pass on more of their genetic material? And that's sort of this um, classic uh, cooperation conundrum that exists, you know, across all animals that cooperate. Um, and... Uh, this species, in most, I should say, in most queenless ant species, they resolve this conflict by um, forming these dominance hierarchies where really only one, maybe two individuals gets to monopolize the reproduction and they, they end up being functionally like a queen and all the workers tend to functionally be like workers. But in this species, 
that was not the case. They break that rule. They do not have the quote unquote monarchy that um, we're, we're used to in ant colonies. Um, and these ants instead um, have this sort of oligarchy where um, sometimes up to half of the colony continues to just uh, peacefully coexist as uh, queen-like workers. Um, we call those gamma gates, by the way. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, and this, I want to just point out, just for a, to, to mention this, this system, this species was originally sort of pioneered and, and described and studied by um, the late ant biologist Christian Peters, who just passed away a couple weeks ago and who was a really inspirational um, biologist for, for people in the ant world. And so I just wanted to sort of acknowledge that his, his work was what led to my um, fascination with this system. Um, but anyway, he, um, he found, he, he was the one that described this phenomenon. And so I wanted to understand like, why, why, what is the difference here um, in these ants versus all of the other ones um, that have this monarchy instead? And um, some of the pioneering work he did showed that it probably had to do with the fact that um, over the course of a year, um, a single colony with many queens will actually bud off, kind of like amoeba budding off mm -hmm. and forming these multiple little um, subcolonies within there. So at the end of a year, most colonies just have one to three queens. So they, um, over time, become more monarchy-like. And then at that time of the year, when they're more, um, when each subcolony only has a few reproductives, the males are released. And the males in ant colonies are really like they are sperm rockets, we say, because they just are little um, flying sperm vesicles. Like they just fly around, mate, and die. And so, um, so once the males are released and mate with the next generation of um, worker like queens, um, you really ultimately, from a genetic standpoint, you have this, um, you, you have a, a, a monarchist, um, a monarchy in the end, like the other ants. So the cooperation that we see is really kind of this, um, they're not really uh, foregoing or, or compromising on their reproduction because in the end they, they get um, a, their own share. Um, so there's that, but then the, that's sort of the background. But what I wanted to understand was how, um, if, if this was, you know, we think this is happening, is there actually any evidence that um, there is some kind of cryptic dominance hierarchy happening, even though we don't see it behaviorally? Like maybe, um, you know, theoretically, maybe some of these ants still could get ahead, get more of their um, genetic material passed on if they were in some way able to monopolize uh, reproduction. And, you know, either chemically, for instance, by sort of suppressing other individuals by producing more of a, a chemical that um, suppress others' reproduction. So I did this experiment where I artificially um, created cheaters, cheaters being individuals that um, had more resources, produced more off more eggs, and were just more reproductive. And I wanted to see if the colony would reject them, and so or or just continue to tolerate this like. Um, cheater ant, and um, and turns out they uh, they just tolerated her uh, her uh, excess reproduction. So um, so whether that actually happens in um, the real system is is yet to be determined. But it definitely shows that these um, these 
anarchist colonies, um, at least uh, an important feature of them is they're highly tolerant of um, one another and they, they permit uh, cheating. And that's not to say that cheating occurs, but they're at least tolerant of it. So how, um, how often do typical individuals in these colonies reproduce? Um, so they, the, the thing is work, um, when ants are reproducing, they're, it depends sort of what you mean by reproducing. They're always producing workers. So they're always, workers, like I said, are female. And so they're constantly laying worker eggs. But um, only once a year in this system do they actually lay eggs that become reproductive. So become future queen-like workers and um, male eggs. So um, the males actually are produced without um, sperm. So males in, in hymenoptera, so bees, wasps, ants, all produce males without mating. So it's only one set of chromosomes, and we call that haploid. And so a, a worker can easily, well, in some species, can, can produce, uh, can lay an egg without mating and produce males. And so those are sexuals, we say, because they will go on to pass on their genetic material. Um, whereas producing queens or workers, um, you, need to, you need to mate. So um, in this system, it's a little weird because the, they're not technically producing queens, they're just producing workers that might go on to become queens. So hmm. it just happens once a year when the season is right. And um, the colony that we've been talking about or the species that we've been talking about, um, they function normally, like they're, they're able to carry on well? Um, oh yeah, I mean, they're very successful. Um, yeah, the area where I was studying them, um, they just, you know, were the dominant species in this, in this um, uh, like scrub, uh, scrub habitat and yeah, they're, they're not hurting. <laughs> they're doing well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I think, um, I think this might be a nice place to end it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say or add? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, I guess, uh, I guess one thing I'd always like, uh, well, the main question I get from people is how do I get rid of the ants in my kitchen? <laughs> and I hope that, um, by you know listening to some of the narratives that and the stories that ants um, can provide helps increase people's appreciation of the ants around them. And um, I'm all for killing the invasive species that are attacking your kitchen, so go for it. But I would say stop for a second and maybe take a look at what they're doing and appreciate how well they um, function as a society. And maybe we can learn something, especially now, about how groups work together. Okay. All right. So... Thanks, Dr. Miller, for meeting with me today. Um, that'll be it for this week of SciSection, so make sure to check out our podcasts available on all of our global platforms, and I'll talk to you later. Bye.